0: You are listening to the Brand Architect Podcast, and this is your host, Ani Alexander.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Brand Architect Podcast. Today, uh, we're going to have yet another interview. It's going to be, again, about branding, about marketing, but this time we're also going to talk about the most important thing that everyone is trying to get into, which is uh, finding and and uh, closing your first client, your first customer. So... Uh, Today I have Luke over, so uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I'm only going to say that we connected on LinkedIn, and which is basically... Actually, LinkedIn has become the main place where I'm sourcing guests these days. Um, and I'll tell you why. Basically, it, the reason is that there aren't many good content cl- creators on LinkedIn. So when there are few that you notice, it's very easy, you know, to find them. So it's it's less crowded than other platforms. So um, Luke is probably on the same page. Uh, space as me so i i used to say that i'm on a crossroad between tech and marketing and i feel that you're in on the same crossroad out there so um tell us what you do and then we can start rolling from there
0: yeah well thanks a lot for having me on your show here annie um yeah it's amazing how we've gotten to know each other over linkedin some people treat linkedin as just a job board and you know they only go on there when they need something but I think the value is, you know, being able to share ideas and learn and take some ideas other people have and apply it to your own work, test it, see what sticks, and then go and share that with everybody all over again. It's a cool cycle. So I've been on LinkedIn for a while, but I'm active now more than ever, really excited to chat. So yeah, I guess my claim to fame is, you know, is helping startup companies find, keep and grow their first customers and users. Um, yeah. I got a background in—I would consider it business development, marketing, and branding, and early-stage technology companies. Some of them were my own; some of them I was a partner brought in. Uh, I've always been the non techie working with techies, trying to bridge,
1: okay. yeah.
0: trying to bridge that communication gap. So I guess I've done a lot of the work about you know figuring out who the first customer is in a tech environment and, you know, and seeing how we can reach them and how we can keep them and then how we can use those great stories to find more of them. And at the same time, I suppose I've worked with a lot of tech leaders, helping them look really good in the process, because I'm not the one building the product, but I'm the one that's building the message around that. So um, I'm really excited to talk, uh, talk branding with you today.
1: Okay, sounds good. So actually, yes, I agree with you. Uh, the bridge that that kind of, you know, image that you describe is exactly the way I feel because uh, somehow, although, you know, it's, it's not a new space. Uh, well, I am in mean, blockchain space, blockchain is relatively kind of newer than the tech in general, but it's not really such a new space. But still, there is a big gap between um, the techie people speaking between each other and then speaking the same way to the non-techie people using the same language and terminology. And then you get this kind of, you know, miscommunication in between the two groups.
0: Yeah, I personally think, Annie, that that gap is only going to get bigger, which is probably good for you and me and anybody else that's trying to bridge the gap between product and marketing, because technology keeps innovating more and more rapidly. And my hypothesis is that because that's happening so quickly, you have a lot of the startups that you see nowadays that are very, the leaders are very tech and product driven, because they're the ones that know how to use it. But then they have no idea how to talk to the market. They have no idea how to talk to early adopters. They have no idea just the basic principles of like customer discovery. They have no idea the value of just listen to the customer, take their words, sandwich those on your website and take their feedback and use that to prioritize your product development. So it's a gap that I think needs to be talked about more.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, there is a really good advice in, in marketing and copywriting, which I think in their case, they shouldn't really take on board, which is write as you speak. Because if they write the way they speak, it's even going to make the, the gap. Bigger, right? So in their case, it's just the opposite, I guess. You know, um, uh, you mentioned something that is very important: discovering the customer and kind of talking to the customer. And I think that is the the important thing that is missing uh, uh, very often uh, with tech startup founders is that uh, you know uh, they they kind of don't really have that as a starting point, right? They feel like, and I totally get that. They are very excited with this new thing that they are building. They are planning to disrupt the whole industry. They are planning to change people's lives. And they're so excited about it that they presume that everyone would need the product or service, right? So they feel like it's obvious, it's there, of course, People will love it. Why even bother spend time talking to them? It's something right. that is by default there, right? So um, when you talk to them about the importance of, of uh, concentrating and kind of focusing on a customer from day one, from, from, from the day when they even start writing the code, do you have any kind of backlash to that, any uh, like, you know, a counter argument against it from the tech perspective, tech people?
0: Well, you mean arguing against the idea? You arguing against the tech people or supporting the tech people?
1: No, tech people's argument against the fact that they should focus on the customer from day one.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, I I, I can understand it often from the perspective that like the tech people are really busy, first of all. So like they're yeah. head down building a product, they're fighting against a lack of cash flow. And from their perspective, being in these types of partnerships myself they really feel that they're the best one to handle it. So um, they are naturally a little bit resistant to outside help in any capacity. The ones that I've worked with and it's because they're geniuses. It's because they know what they're doing, but you know, yeah, from their perspective, it's like, well, I'm really busy. It's going to take like weeks for somebody to understand what's happening in my head for months or years so i'm just Mm -hmm. gonna go and i'm gonna get out an mvp and we'll see what the world thinks and then we'll check it out and you know again i totally understand and respect that argument and also it's often their baby so from an ego perspective which i think ego is also evil in these situations from their perspective like they should feel pretty awesome when they wake up in the morning knowing that they put their heart and soul into something but again there's another side of the same coin right I, i suppose we'll talk a little bit about that and you know these same things that are positive qualities that get product founders the enthusiasm and motivation to build something that's ridiculously cool can also mm. be their downside too right
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely it's it's just uh it's very good to be obsessed about what you're building, but, uh, sometimes that obsession leads to, uh, being, uh, detached from the reality. And, and, you know, it's, I think there is this fine balance that it's very hard to find and keep at the same time. So it's, it's, it's a journey and, and it's, yeah, the balancing out things is, is very hard actually.
0: Yeah. And in my situation, the, like in a, in a recent situation, what the founder CEO did is he brought me on board, actually. And he thought that that would be the the balancing. that He thought, oh, yeah. you know, I'll bring on someone, whether they are a marketing person, a salesperson, somebody that can own the customer experience, do customer discovery, someone who mm-hmm. can bring the customer into our environment and to provide us with advice. But what ended up happening is it just felt like outsourcing of responsibilities and when you have a disconnect between the people responsible building a product and the people Mm -hmm. responsible marketing a product it's never good you're playing a telephone game at best where the customer tells me something and then I tell you know the product lead something and something gets lost in that translation Um, Mm. it's just there's no thing that you can do to replace that direct intimacy that you need between founders and customers. I think you can bring people in to help, but I don't think you can just outsource these kinds of responsibilities. And you know, I think you can make the argument that everything is a project until you have a customer, like a business needs to have a customer. So if you have mm-hmm. a tech founder that wants to just stay in their garage and build a product, I actually have no problem with that, but it's the moment as soon as they raise capital, as soon as they hire employees, as soon as they start doing things where they're responsible to other people and organizations, that's where I think they need to set aside their stubbornness, their ego, their their utmost desires and just say, you know what, we're a business now and we need to start thinking about it. And in order to run the right kind of business, nobody is going to say that you can't talk to your customers.
1: Okay. Yeah, I get it. So uh, the role of marketing. In the tech startups, especially in the early stages, I feel like sometimes we have to justify the need of the marketing because very often, uh, you know, we're getting clients, for example, who come to us uh, after they have built the product or like, you know. Just a month or two months before the launch of the product, right? Because very often um, the priority is the tech, the priority is building the thing. And then marketing is something that they feel like it's something they need to do later on and it's just ticking a box, right? So, um, what do you think? Like, are, 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 do you feel like things are changing now? Like, do you think that the role of marketing is like, still undervalued or or there are changes happening that kind of bring it forward and they realize that maybe they have to address the issue a bit earlier than when they usually do? Yeah,
0: that's a really good question, Annie. And uh, from what I am learning and experiencing and hearing other thought leaders talk about, including ourselves, it seems like Marketing should be more responsible in owning that voice of the customer more so Mm -hmm. than they are today. It also seems like every department in a company, not just marketing, should have an increased responsibility for owning and managing and nurturing that customer voice. It seems like we are moving in the right direction. Like if you rewind five, 10 years ago, CX, like customer experience, was way shittier than it is now so it's getting Mm -hmm. better. It's still not great. You still need to be an exceptional company to break through. But I think it's the same thing with, you know, with customer centricity with understanding the customer, I think we're moving in the right direction. But I don't know, I, I really think that maybe even the word marketing is the wrong one. Because when you think of marketing, you think of, oh, like, let's build it first, right? Let's build our blockchain solution. And then let's Mm -hmm. go and on the marketing people to help build the message and sell it. And it's like, no, there is something that's lost there. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what that is or how it should be, but I think, I think that customer voice needs to be involved in that conversation before that product was built.
1: Uh, yeah. I agree with you. I, I would say that, uh, you know, uh, the, the founders do have the main idea that they start with. But when you go into the details and into the nitty gritty details of the product and the features and the UX and everything else, in terms of how you're building that thing uh that's where already you know if you involve your your customer your potential future customers uh you will end up building what they actually want right because you know even if you have an idea about a product you can build it in several different ways and and in in general in terms of the user journey in terms of the colors of the buttons or in terms of, you know, stuff that is not really, shouldn't really be so crucial to you, even if it's your baby, but you know that this is the preference of, of the people who would be using it later on. Uh, you try to listen to it, you know, earlier than later.
0: Yeah. I, I think that just hearing you say that, Annie, I feel like if the only thing that marketing did while the product was actually being built is a, sit in on every call or every meeting with the customer, just sit in there, take notes when the customer says something like write it down, right. And B every time that the marketing department notices something to share that observation and have the product team actually review it and consider it at every stage of the product development. I think we would have more successful launches because I think the marketing team would be building up their ideas for messaging and, you know, how to structure things right from the very beginning. So they're going to understand things at an intimate yeah. level that they couldn't otherwise. And they're going to see things and they're going to be able to share those observations with the team that might actually tweak the product or tweak the roadmap as it's being built. So just yeah. seems so obvious, but it's never done.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh I think it's also not done, not only because it's like, you know, because of the importance of the marketing at that stage already, the lack of, you know, the importance of marketing in that stage already, the realization that, you know, it can be already involved in the whole process, but also because uh, somehow uh, maybe the, the tech departments and the marketing departments should really collaborate more together. From the very start and I feel like there are some detachments between the two uh because maybe like you know there isn't even there is the need of the bridge even at that level not only the bridge between the tech people and their future customers but also between the marketing department and the tech department of the company as well maybe.
0: yeah yeah I I I agree that there's, these departments are siloed and it's a, it's a very weird sort of situation we're in. I just saw someone was talking on LinkedIn, how they believe it's only the leadership's responsibility to carry the voice of the customer. And I was just Mm. so upset when I saw that because like from one perspective, I can understand it because everybody has their job. Everybody is compensated to do something specific. And it's kind of hard sometimes to draw attribution to things to say, Oh, well, if the product developers spend more time with the customer, it makes them better at their job. Like how do you measure that kind of stuff? But I feel that it actually does. I feel that if you did take every single department and you found a way to bring the customer into that conversation, ideally you'd physically bring the human, the customer into that conversation I think we would have better products and more motivated teams. And I think people actually want to do this. I just don't think there are enough examples within companies of this being Mm -hmm. executed because anytime I've taken, you know, a back of the room, you know, senior software developer and put him or her, I literally did this with one of my colleagues. I said, Igor, come with me today. You're going to sit with the customer. And after the meeting, not only did he have ideas, But ideas aside, he had a new appreciation and motivation like he was fired up. So you try telling me that he's not going to be more interested next time to listen to what the customer says. It doesn't necessarily need to be tied to compensation or attribution. People want to know that they're making an impact. It's better to hear directly from the person that you're impacting. Right
1: yeah absolutely so let's talk about what what you always kind of you know what what you put the main importance at and you always say that first customer matters and uh you know that we the first customer is something like a a big milestone to get, right? Because it's one thing to to kind of uh, theoretically think that you're building something that people want uh, or need. And it's a completely different thing when the person actually proves it by opening the wallet and paying for it, right? So what is the journey? Like, how do you get from... The, the stage where you have an idea, uh, you you have a team, you're working on, on building that stuff until you reach the point where you get a real person pay you in order to use your product.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if, if or when I figure out how to share that answer in 60 seconds, I think you and me are both <laughs> going to be famous. So let's put it that way. So. <laughs> I definitely think it's a mix of art and science because, Mm -hmm. and right now that's kind of what I'm doing with my brand. I'm trying to keep it very focused. So when people think about me, they think about the first customer. I think it's very good to be hyper-focused like that. And I've also had experience finding the first customer 10 different times in my own startups. That's not saying Mm -hmm. they've all been super success stories, but like you alluded to, if you don't find the first one, you can't build a successful business. So you need to start there. Um, some recipes to that success equation that I'm seeing really consistent. Um, Firstly, it always requires some outbound. So you need to have a founder or team that's willing to actually reach out to the customer. Like Mm -hmm. there's no rocket science behind that part. You choose if you want to do it on LinkedIn, whether you want to do it through Instagram DMs, you choose whether you want to go to in-person events, you choose whether you want to go on hundred different websites and scrape email addresses and send messages, but you need to be outbound, I think, because nobody's going to go to your website otherwise, because you essentially don't exist. Uh, but th- how
1: do you do it though? Sorry for interrupting, but no, this is a very please. important point because like, you know, we have spoken about this with, with many different people and being on, on LinkedIn or any other platforms, we, we have experienced all this cold messaging and all these douchey salesy stuff yeah. that you, you actually don't really want to get. No. And, um, and just because you may do it the wrong way, just because it may sound a bit creepy, just because it may sound intrusive and you know, all that st- wrong stuff that people are doing may lead me not even want to check it out. So it may eventually kind of have this, the opposite effect to yeah. to the thing. Right. So ha like, you know, outbound, I, I get it. Yes, if people don't know you, you have to go to them and instead of sitting and waiting that they will discover you somehow. But... Uh how do you do it the right way? Because sometimes it can go really, really wrong, you know?
0: Yeah, you're right. You kind of have the deck stacked against you a little bit, right? It's like it's like when I was a little bit younger and I used to go into the bar and I would, I, I would look for the, the most beautiful person in the room. And I'm thinking there's probably 20 other people that approach this beautiful person before I did. So I'm already like working with a disadvantage, right? Before I go up to that lovely lady, she's already been approached by 20 people with their crappy sales pitch. So even Mm -hmm. if mine is one, she's already thinking negatively. It's kind of the same with outbound, but I think you need to think past that. And I think one of the important things is to think about your early adopters because early adopters will be according to the crossing the chasm, um, technology adoption life cycle, really good book crossing the chasm. And it explains basically no more than 16% of your market will be considered early adopters and innovators. So that means you should expect that 80 well, 84% won't be mm-hmm. interested even if you do craft the perfect message. So from that perspective, it is a little bit of a numbers game because you can't message three people and expect that you're going to get a response. And if you don't, you have a crappy idea. So you need to message enough people to be able to get some results. And I think it really does make a difference when you do things that do stack the deck in your favor. Like don't mention you're the CEO, mention you're the founder. Like when you do that, people naturally want to talk to the idea person much more than they want to talk to the sales rep or the CEO. So say that you are the founder or you're the crazy scientist that's building something and people want Mm -hmm. to talk to you, make it very clear that you want their advice. Like don't, you don't want the sale. Even if you want the sale, don't ask for the sale and make sure that you can look at your message and it doesn't look like you want the sale. Because um, it's actually the same with raising capital. You ask for advice, you get the sale, you ask for the sale, you get advice. And when you ask for advice and you have these calls, which is usually my CTA, uh, call to action. If I can't do an in-person meeting, I'm trying to set up the next most intimate thing, which is often a Zoom call. And if I'm doing that, I'm literally going into it, asking them purely for their advice on this call and often these early adopters will imagine themselves being your first customer when they answer your questions. So that's how I've always started it by not mm. being, party, by coming from the perspective, I'm the entrepreneur with a crazy idea. I don't claim to know anything. I just say, here's, here's what we're trying to solve. Here's what we think we do. And then I share the little bit of social proof that I have like, Hey, I talked to, you know, 10 people, and they said that this is the really cool thing that we do. You know, I make it simple. I list out the benefits. I have a call mm-hmm. to action that really makes sure that I'm absolutely just looking for their advice, that I recognize them as a thought leader. Yeah. And people love being recognized as thought leaders and early adopters. And again, if you do that message to enough people with enough hustle, you'll get your meetings. And even if they say no, the most beautiful part of that is Annie, ask them why not? Ask them what needs to change about this for them to say yes, because every no is amazing. And the last time I closed a six-figure sale with my first early adopter, it was literally from a no. And I said, what needs to be different? They told me three things. We were able to change all three. Again, it 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 was a big sale. So even a no is an amazing thing when you do get these calls.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I, I get it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a fine line and it's very hard to sort of, you know, very often it's, it's a bit of, uh, intuitive game as well. at, at some point because, uh, I, I feel like again, what you mentioned in terms of asking why, why now uh, is, is kind of you know the the right way to to react differently in different situations with different people. So I see, I feel like what makes me cringe with all these messages that I'm getting is I know they are copy and paste of of you know a message that was sent to thousand more people before me, and for them I'm just numbers game. So yeah. you know,
0: if I can add to that point, because that's arguably the most important thing here is be human and be personal. Uh, like you can't make it seem copy and paste. So like that's that's just me. I have this strong philosophy. You might actually get better results if you do copy paste and you play the numbers game. I don't have enough data to show, but it's not me. It's not my style. And what I've always done and what I really believe in fundamentally is, you know, do a templated message, but I call it a custom templated message because mm. there's a core part of the message that I'm going to use for everyone. And I should. But I want to send this message. I want the person who reads it to know that I understand them, to know that I spent the effort and the energy to check out their website, to understand what makes them unique. And it's just those little details using their name, mentioning their location, mentioning that, you know, their specific products that you saw them talk about something particular, which is why you message them. Mention why your excuse was for contacting them. Did you see their name in a magazine of the top 10 most innovative blah? Like, I think you need to personalize it. And I think this is how you just build relationships in general, whether you're at the grocery store or whether you're selling a high tech solution. And I think that this increases your response rate. It takes long to execute, but I think the response rates go way up. What do you think?
1: Uh uh yeah, I think so. It's it's just um it depends again. Sometimes you know they are personalizing in a way that it it sounds it looks like it was just personalized, like you know, we we are from yeah. the same industry, let's connect. Or, you know, I just saw your profile, we have much in common, let's connect, or stuff like that, which is kind of personal, but you also know that it's not so personal. So I, I think it's like it all depends. Uh, but um, at the same time, uh, some people actually prefer straightforward sales pitches because then, you know, they say no and move on and they know that they are not going to get another kind of sequence of follow-up messages saying, I know you're busy. I just wanted to pump this up and, you know, and, and everything else, right? So, uh, so yeah, there is, there is kind of maybe like... Uh, people should experiment and test and see what, what works best, but yeah, outbound was the first step. So let's move forward. Once you do that, what's next.
0: Yeah. So I'll say two more quick things because I think that they're interesting to say, I think that's why structure is important of these messages, because if mm-hmm. you don't structure it the right way, even if it's valuable, it's not easy to read. So structured in a nice way. And you alluded to this also that second message, that follow up message I think that's that's the time when you want to be able to share some kind of update, ideally. So I, I love sending second messages when I actually have something to say, not just hey, I'm following up. But if you're a tech startup, tell them that you started version two. tech them, tell them that you deployed something, tell them that you finished mm-hmm. something, send them a damn picture that you didn't have to send them the first time. So make it interesting. So you you want to talk about after that initial message now, Annie?
1: Uh, yeah, probably just, uh, just to wrap it up in terms of outbound, I think being intriguing and, and, and provoking curiosity is what works most, uh, in my case, at least it's kind of, you know, if it's something different, if it's something unique, if it's kind of an, uh, an approach that kind of makes me, well, oh, you know, I, I haven't seen this before. Let's, let's just check it out. Or like, you know, these kind of things, curiosity and kind of intriguing stuff is probably something that may stand out from the crowd.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. So we gave the example of a genuine outbound message. It sounded copy paste. Why did it sound copy paste? Because 17 other people said it to me in the last week. So make your message unique, uh, make it genuine, but make it unique.
1: Okay. Yeah, I guess we, we covered that part. So let's, let's move on. Woo.
0: <laughs> so, so. So do you wanna follow like do you wanna follow the the buyer's journey in this or what direction do you wanna go in any?
1: I mean, I don't know. Like what what what's your preferred <laughs> journey? I I mean I don't know your processes, so uh you yeah. you're the one leading me here. So I don't know.
0: Okay. So I'll I always say
1: what. I'm I'm suck at uh, uh I, I sack at sales and and closing customers. So uh you know, <laughs> you definitely know more about this than me. So I'll let you lead.
0: Well, I've told you this offline, but I personally think that lots of people that say that they suck at sales are good at sales because they're not actually trying to sell. So, um, yeah. I, I think it would be better to be not good at sales but be really genuine and authentic and personalized, than to be good at sales but to not have those qualities and just to be pushing a message. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily consider myself a salesperson, but then everybody tells me you're a salesperson. So. All right. (laughs) So what what I would personally do after you get you so you send out your messages. And in my case, honestly, I sent like last time I really went through this cycle, I sent I think it was 150 messages, Mm -hmm. email I chose. And the reason why I sent 150 is again because I you need to use empathy. I think empathy is the secret weapon in any Mm -hmm. type of startup environment and any type of business environment. And in life. Because yeah. if you use empathy, you'll understand that I'll send 150 messages. And uh, because of the industry I was targeting, I expected that half of them would just be too busy or too distracted. And it would get mm-hmm. lost in the inbox because they don't got proper inbox management. That's fine. So that's half them out of the way. You're down to 75 let's say that again only let's say 10% of them are early adopters then i really have 7 to 8 people that i'm really speaking to and again a few of those people might just not be interested or timing might be wrong so then really i should only expect a few people to be able to get the conversation with i send 150 messages i think i had more than 10 calls so i considered mm-hmm. it a good response rate for me considering that considering what I was doing and who I was offering it to. Again, it's different if it's an early adopter sale to not, but I got some attention and then we had phone calls. And from those phone calls, I really just prioritized learning. And I tried to steer the conversation in a direction that it became really clear what problem we were solving because I mm-hmm. didn't build the product. I didn't have the emotional attachment to thinking that I can't change something. So okay. I, I think that's the the thing that tech founders need to get, you know, get around is how do they forget about what they've built? And that's perhaps why it's best to be outbound early because you don't look at it as baggage. Like, oh, we already went this far. Like we can't stop now. And I'll really try to figure out what exact problem we're solving. I will not put words in the customer's mouth. And my favorite part about these early conversations from a marketing perspective is I'm one of those people, I will write down every single thing the customer says and I'll use it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what what copy do I put on the website? What do I talk about on LinkedIn? What do I put in the next sales presentation to the next person? Often like the best slogans, the best one-liners, what does my company do? Often these things come from your customer's mouths, not from your own ideas. So I try to be really not stubborn to this and really use it like an actual learning discovery conversation that will just make me better every single call that I have, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. Sounds really cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And often, and often like this is the whole, like, I'm curious your, your perspective on how COVID affects our ability to learn and our ability to market. I am conflicted because I think that the best way to learn after you have these first few conversations is do everything you can, especially if you're in B2B and you're dealing with a ticket, uh, an annual reoccurring revenue that's high enough to justify it. If you're mm-hmm. really on, it's not about how much profit or money you make on the first few deals. It's just about getting those deals done, getting the story and being mm-hmm. able to share it and getting you know, being able to show traction to the rest of the world that you delivered something and having the data around it. So I'm a big believer of like, go to your customers physically after these first conversations, you know, maybe they haven't committed yet. That's totally fine. But like, I think the people that are willing to go and watch the customers face to face, do what they do are going to have the next level of learning and build a deeper relationship. It's probably my biggest soapbox, Annie, because Customers don't naturally know what to tell you. Like Mm. they don't know. Customers don't know how to teach entrepreneurs. Customers don't know or they're not experts in their own workflows from a description perspective. They've been doing things for years. So if you Mm -hmm. rely on what they say to you over a phone call for your product development and marketing strategy, you're missing a lot. So that's where I think. You need to double down on that intimacy and actually go to your customers. When you are physically standing with them in their warehouse, you'll understand, ah, we can't deploy a product like that because it works in this environment. Or holy smokes, we don't have internet connectivity here. So we're going to have to have something that works in offline mode. You're going to realize things that were just never told you over the phone. So like I built an app for paramedics in emergency healthcare. Best thing I learned was actually being on the ambulance or in the emergency Mm -hmm. department. You watch them, you make a bunch of notes, you sit there quietly asking questions. And then at the end of the eight hour shifts, then you start asking, well, like, why does this system not talk to that system? And they're like, they didn't even think about it. So there's a huge opportunity for those that are willing to actually be with the customers and do that learning together.
1: Yeah, I, I totally get that. It's the same with kind of, you know, I, I, I have a funny story uh, from one of the best-selling authors who was telling me that, you know, usually when you're writing fiction and you're creating characters, you, you would like to have the characters that are kind of, uh, uh, that people resonate with, that are kind of, you know, uh, real and... um so so they can kind of follow the story and, and and feel it, right? So and for that you need a certain type of uh things to make it justifiable, to make it believable. Um so that that author specifically, I don't remember his name now, but he was writing about someone who had been buried alive, right? So what he did, he went to a uh, um funeral services and he arranged uh um uh to to be actually buried alive for for two hours uh in order to feel how his character would feel you know in that situation and go through the whole experience and he was telling this whole story in a very funny way because when he went there it was you know the the person who who he agreed about, with um, for, for this thing to happen next day. And when he went there the next day, the guy there wasn't there, his father was there. And he was telling that the guy was very old, and you know, and he was very worried that he would forget him at one point there. So, like, you know, the pressure and <laughs> and the whole experience was very real. And then you go and start. So basically, I mean, I, I think this story kind of tells that the importance of putting yourself in, in, in this case, it was like the character's shoes, but in, in um, tech startups play a uh, case, probably putting yourself in your customer's shoes and, and try to learn as much about them as possible. Like when I was launching my podcast six years ago, uh, I was creating this kind of ideal listeners avatar and uh and it it worked just like creating a a character right a fictional character i didn't know in advance who would be listening to me but i knew who i would like to listen to me right Mm -hmm. so I, i came up with this character whose name was tom who was 42 years old who was married with kids who didn't who hated his job who committed to the job for 40 45 minutes and that's how long my episodes were because i thought that my my listener would be listening in the car while driving to work right so it kind of helps you make decisions about your format about your things uh and you know he had this aspiration and he he had this passion of writing and he always dreamed to uh, to see his name on a book cover but he never had the opportunity it was always a hobby he didn't have the time because he worked full-time this that etc etc and then you just get into this mind into that mindset right which kind of led me decide that it's not going to only interviews I will also have like short episodes for the mindset for motivation for encouragement because that's what they lack apart from the practical knowledge and kind of the tips of how to actually take action and make stuff right Uh, the funny thing was though because I was just making things up right I was just imagining things I mean I I, I didn't know that person in real life I didn't even know where these people were, kind of, and how to reach them, right? But because I created this character and because I kind of imagined it in a very detailed way, the content that was created for the podcast actually ended up by being such that was attracted, attracting Tom's. So eventually, yeah. at the end of the day, like two years later, when I was doing a survey and trying to figure out, like when I already had a feedback loop and I was getting emails from listeners, I ended up with probably about at least eighty percent of my listenership being Tom type of people, right? Um, so it's kind of it works both way, but in in in, in tech startups part, probably going a, a step beyond that. Once you imagine who you want to serve, then going and out and meeting those people and trying to learn as much as possible about them probably is something that is gonna help.
0: Yeah. In that's a wonderful story, Annie. In that example, how did you how did you know Tom so well? Because Like, I think that's probably that's part of the key here is that you knew somebody and what they wanted so well and intimately. And they were somewhat related to your audience that you were able to curate your program so tightly to them. Like, like, would you consider yourself a Tom? Do you know somebody that's a Tom? Or how did you get that insight to know Um, how to craft Tom in well,
1: the first time. It it was a mixture, like in terms of what's going on in fiction author's mind, in terms of the self-doubt, in terms of, you know, the, the creativity, the lack of news, you know, the writer's block and all that stuff is something that right. I knew because I had gone through it, right? In terms of all other aspects, uh, you know, you... You spend some time online in similar communities, right? So I had kind of, you know, I had spent some time in different communities, online communities of writers from, from different spheres. And, and you start paying attention. What they talk about. What are the topics that they cover? What are their challenges? And, and fiction authors are kind of opening up very easy. Like it's not. It's not so difficult, but talking to tech entrepreneurs is much harder than talking to fiction authors, obviously. So they they are very open. They, They love sharing their stories and things like that. So I think I kind of I had the foundational kind of overall generic stuff already from there and then you know specifically because it's it's again it's relatively a niche thing right like fiction authors you have different type of authors and then you know the general kind of trends and then you end up picking the type specifically that you want to serve later on uh but yeah i mean the starting point was me having like generic knowledge based on just being among those type of people and and later on um most of them, because uh, fiction writing is, is very hard to make money and to have like a full-time income from fiction writing, most of them had to go to work, obviously. But since the passion was writing, they definitely didn't enjoy what they were doing. They, they thought that what they were doing was actually not something they did in order to pay bills, but apart from that, it's also something that keeps them away from what they'd rather be doing instead and, uh, yeah. and all this stuff right so many people had this mentality of uh, uh, making money with art is is not a noble thing it's not a commercial stuff it's not a business you know my book is not a product my book is uh, you know um, product of love and art and uh, creativity so they had this mental block of actually, looking at it and and kind of you know looking at marketing their books as if they are selling products um and and everything else so it's it's kind of loads of different things that went into that but uh but yeah uh-huh. you just make things up most of the things were like not some things that i knew for sure i just made them up
0: <laughs> you know i think that this is basically a lesson here that non linear career paths have massive synergies. Like I know Mm -hmm. you had a non-linear career path. Um, you know, I have had a non-linear career path, I would say too. And I feel that when you have a non-linear career path, you pull things from your other experiences that Mm make you bring a unique perspective and therefore often unique value to what it is that you do later. And I'm hearing you talk about your experience, you know, coming from the perspective of a best-selling fiction author. And I'm also thinking of just Hollywood movie productions where sometimes you have the best Hollywood actors that are actually doing weird things to get into character to do their Mm -hmm. role. And it's just a very interesting kind of mentality because I think that your experience being a best-selling author, I think actually makes you a better marketer. Because you're dreaming and envisioning the ideal customer profile. And I just think Mm. it's an interesting skill how you're able to think and imagine, you know, this is Tom. He's 42 years old. This is what he's doing. This is what his pains are. You're naturally trained to dream and imagine and envision that way. And it's just an example of how something you did that's so different actually isn't when you look on an actual skill and value perspective. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah I would say i mean that that comes back to like you know all this idea that tech startups and and diversity like you know uh, how valuable the diversity is and and when i'm talking di- about diversity i don't mean that standard definition of let's throw several women and you know several yeah. lgdp people into the stuff and, and and claim being diverse i'm talking about like diversity of backgrounds diversity of opinions diversity of experiences because that's what the valuable diversity is about. Because if you know, if if it's uh 50-50 men, women, but they are all from the same background, they were all raised the same way and they all think the same way, it's not gonna help much, right? It's not really gonna bring this this power of the diversity into space. So it's not really what it is. uh, you know the popular term of diversity and the way people are solving that issue. Uh, probably doesn't work because that's not the issue. The issue is about more the diversity of, uh, opinions, experiences and cultural backgrounds and everything else. So, uh, so I guess, uh, that's another thing that tech startups kind of don't consider much, uh, because it's, it's heavily, especially in some, you know, uh, industries like AI and blockchain. It's like, it's very heavily kind of, you know, um, concentrated type of people that are around it for for yeah certain reasons and uh probably that's why a new perspective is very important but at the same time it's it's not there because i I don't know why i mean why do you think it's not there because i feel like you know um, there are loads of things that are lacking and very often i'm just thinking Is it lacking because people just don't like, you know, people with different opinions and different approaches don't want to get into the space or it's lacking because the space thinks that they don't need that. So they're not really looking for it. Like, is it uh, like, which one is it? I just don't know. I, I still don't know.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I think a lot of these things apply similarly in startups and regular sized companies right so i often draw similarities for a regular for an established company that is no longer considered a startup like try talking to a recruiter nowadays and you'll see how they need to fit you in a box drives me nuts Uh, i like and i don't really want to necessarily knock the recruiter because it's often a reflection of the company or the client that they're working for. Right. They want someone who fits into this mold. You know, if Luke comes to them and says, Hey, you know, I have experience in the full funnel of business development, including project management, including this. And then I go and apply to a job and they say, Oh, you need five years experience in project management. Specifically in
1: that one thing. Yeah.
0: Mm. I, I got True. two years equivalent, but like I've also done everything else that you require. And they're like, no, sorry. Cause then their clients require that. So it's that's, maybe an issue. That's in of- a case
1: a human being is looking at what you've done. That's kind of if you get even there, because very often it's just a keyword.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so, Why do startups not do that? I, I can't say a particular reason why a startup wouldn't do that. I think a startup would be more open to it than these established yeah. companies. But I think we often just, and it probably startups fall victim to this too. You look for somebody who's got that related experience where you're kind of not realizing, you're not thinking about, how fast somebody can learn. You're not thinking about how apl- cross applicable somebody's thinking is. You're not looking at a best-selling fiction author and saying, "Wow, this person could run our entire marketing team." And I can understand that, but I think that's a missed opportunity on a human level of actually seeing who the most talented people are. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a problem that we have, and it might come down to things like ego, honestly. There's a lot of ego in startups and it's good and it's bad, but it's saying that I've done this for 10 years, so I'm the best. And if you try to provide me an opinion and you don't have that experience, don't talk to me. I think if we all just drop that ego and stop being protective of our skill and our ideas, I think that's where Mm -hmm. the diversity fit in a little bit better.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. So let's talk about branding. Uh, in startups, very often what I have discovered, uh, usually what works best, uh, if it's kind of applicable, because in some cases it's not uh, uh, for personality reasons, but uh, on in tech startups where uh, the CEO is also a personal brand, things work really, really well. Uh, so what is this kind of, you know, how, how, do you view the, the importance of the personal brand for the founder and also like the, the, the company brand and how do they interact in between each other? Like, how do you balance those?
0: Yeah. I love the fact that you mentioned that. I think it's such a cool and hot topic, at least in my community right now, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's actually something that I'm executing on right now. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you, 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 you know, my friend boss and mentor Misha, we're yes. literally looking at what we're doing at deep dive technology from the perspective of, you know, that was like the first thing I did when I showed up, I said, let's, it's not working to just keep posting information to our corporate mm-hmm. page and yeah. then have our leaders click the share button on that because people want to deal with people and yeah. for me i just think subconsciously i don't really want to leave a comment on a post on linkedin if it's from somebody that i don't know who wrote it like it's yeah. just a corporate banner i want to know who the human is i want them to also be able to talk in a way that is relatable and human but share mm-hmm. an opinion and controversial brands are scared to do that so uh for those two reasons and probably a bunch of others it just feels right. And there's actually data to back this up that when an employee shares something, it gets much more virality than if a company shares it. And oh, like definitely.
1: I've, I've tested it many times and people just don't want to follow brands, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and and usually even if, if there are brands that are being followed and have a really good fan base are, uh, I call them human brands you know, with, with loads of human element behind it in terms of, you know, their, their vision, their positioning, their stories. And, you know, human brands are the only ones that, that work out these days.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The best thing that I've seen is, uh, is that the company brand, if it's executed properly, the best idea I've curated to date is it should actually be a curator. It should take the best information from the industry with regards to the problem that you're solving and talk about it. And that doesn't mean you're always talking about your company. Talk about your competitor. Talk about somebody else in the industry. Do a customer profile, but don't make it salesy and provide like a one-stop shop resource for anybody that wants to know what's happening in that particular niche of the industry. And then the actual voice to the customer should be coming from your CEO, your visionary, your leaders. And I think that changes a little bit on every company, but Mm -hmm. I looked at this situation and I I turned to Misha and I said, Misha, you have like 8,000 followers on your LinkedIn account. You have a spicy, controversial, big belief personality, and you're at the forefront of thought leadership in in an industry. LinkedIn's algorithm is punishing you when you're just clicking the share button of the corporate post to go to your own page, we should be doing the opposite. Let's be LinkedIn first, not just website first. And let's be CEO visionary first. And let's have basically the corporate brand be resharing stuff from the personal brand. And I see engagement is going way up. um, Leads start coming in. And if it's executed the right way in a non salesy way, like don't tell people to go to your website. They'll figure it out themselves. It's ingrained. Yeah. do not tell people they need to follow you. They will figure that out themselves. Some people might say something different, but you don't need to push a particular call to action. You don't need to push a particular hard message. Just deliver constant value every single day, every single week. And I look at our situation and in B2B sales, it's like if a few people that are targeted see this message every week, Those will be the leads directly or indirectly, whether we can take attribution and say we got that because of this post that we delivered on July 11th, maybe we can't do that. But I'm just very bullish on how it feels and that the results so far of being personal brand over corporate.
1: Uh, Yeah, I agree with you. And the other thing that is kind of uh, uh, an additional uh, kind of reason for personal brands is very often, when you you know when people are hiring companies, eventually they are hiring people, right? So if I'm hiring a company, I want to know that the team that is going to work on my project is knowledgeable. They they have the expertise, and you know I have to have trust in these people. And the only way to trust them is to know who they are, to 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 know what they're about, and kind of you know to to. To, to see what they do, which is you know, showcasing their personal brand. I would go even further. If I have a choice between two founders with similar services that are putting out valuable content out there about the field, if I like the personality of the one who's also sharing some personal stuff and showing part of his personality and what kind of person he is, Beyond the the business, right? Uh, I would be more inclined to to go to that direction because when I'm a supporting brands, when I'm choosing brands, uh, I always like the the element of who is the founder and how much I like the founder on a personal personality basis, uh, based on how they you know they acted in different situation, what was their standpoint, what was is what are their values, are what kind of determines the thing because I may like the product, but there is an alternative and I don't like the way the CEO behaves, I will probably not really go for it with that. So I think it's kind of personal brands also need to be a bit personal. I don't know what you think about it.
0: Yeah, people talk with people, people want to use social media to be social with other people. And I'm a big believer on two different levels. On one level, I think that people that do have a big personality that are a thought leader in their industry that do have that opportunity and, you know, and want to do it should try to be the Gary V the Gary Vaynerchuk's of their niche. I I really believe that. I know you're smirking and laughing at me, but I think it's like, he's, he's doing something on another level and I just think it's inspiring that people should look at it and say, well, how do I be, Gary V of my niche, or something that we can relate much more to on LinkedIn, everybody wants to be the next Chris Walker, right? Um, you know, you want to yeah. be the Chris Walker of your niche. And I think that's a really good goal. And he's built a phenomenal brand. And you see these people's names and faces everywhere. So I think we should be striving to figure out like, what thing can I be Can I start building my Gary V empire around and you need to focus on a niche and add value and be non salesy and be consistent all the time. But at a minimum, Annie, I think at an absolute minimum, you need to have some kind of online presence because if I'm choosing what brand I'm going to work with, what entrepreneur I'm going to have on my podcast first customer club, if I'm trying to just imagine who I'm going to help because entrepreneurs sometimes call me for advisory meetings I'm not going to take that meeting, honestly, unless they have a LinkedIn profile, unless when I Google search their name, their face pops up. It also just helps build trust. I'm not going to do business with somebody that I can't see that exists and cares about their reputation online. So I think at a minimum, you need to be there. At a maximum, there's a chance to build thought leadership that brings in, you know, that brings in opportunity and revenue and jobs basically forever.
1: Yeah, I, I partly agree with you and I'll explain why partly because, uh, uh, yes, I mean, Gary B is doing a fantastic job, uh, and all the others that you mentioned. Uh, the, the one thing that I kind of, you know, want to warn people about is, There is only one Gary Vee. There is only one Chris Walker. If that personality, you know, if that's not how you talk, if you're not so loud as Gary Vee, if you're not using F-bombs every second word, if that's not you, don't try to be Gary Vee. Do it your own way, right? You know, be... Kind of, you know, I, I feel like m- many people are very tempted into copying also the style, copying also the personality part of it and kind of the things. Copy the strategies, copy what works best, but don't really try to be someone else. Because it's kind of, you know, you're, you're by default are going to lose the game because there's only one Gary Vee. And, and you, you can't compete with him in, in, in something he's best at. It just doesn't make sense. So, I agree.
0: And yeah. timing changes too, right? So like in business, just because traction channels work one year doesn't mean they're going to work the next year when everybody else joins, right? There's always opportunity arbitrage. Just because Chris Walker was able to do what he did when he started doesn't mean somebody else could go in with the exact same message and do it now. Maybe the market is saturated in your particular niche right so I think entrepreneurs need to look at not just like I think be aware of what worked right be aware of who's doing something very well whether it's personal branding whether it's a product in the market whether it's a personality a TV show whatever but yeah you're totally right I'm glad you clarified that you need to carve your own path but that's not saying that I can't steal You know, ten percent of what Gary's doing, ten percent Chris is doing, ten percent of what Annie's doing. I might take twenty from you, but you know, (laughs) a little bit here and there, I think makes a difference. And then put on your own special spice.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And also like, you know, all these people probably figured things out because they tried something new. So like, don't, don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to do something. I mean, to me, like the biggest argument to try something is when they say, but no one else has done it. And I'm like, okay, great. It means that we have to try because that's the best argument kind of, you know, because then it means that there is a chance to stand out and if if it will work or it won't, but at least you will have tried. And if it works, you will be the first one who figures it out so then you will be the next person that people will be trying to to reach to and kind of copy and everything else so yeah could not Absolutely. agree more. yeah so i guess it's on this positive note we can uh yeah we can stop the broadcast thanks for everyone who watched i hope it was useful uh, i think we covered like lots of topics and kind of uh brought uh not always so popular opinions to the table so you know uh feel free to to think it over and see if it you know if it's something you want to pursue um uh, but i feel like uh yeah i mean uh this is something that uh, will definitely be useful if you just consider it and just have a look and, and kind of uh, go back and look how you are doing things and compare it to what Luke was advising.
0: Learning is um, living, but don't leave any tomatoes in my mailbox now. Come on. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Okay. So bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a comment. Uh, that would make my day. And for now, we'll just uh, yeah stop the stream and we can continue without you listeners. <laughs> Take care.
0: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Annie.